chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, now the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. And he said, Bring me a new jar, and put some salt in it. So they brought it to him. And he went out to the spring of water, and threw salt in it, and said, Thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters, and there shall not be their death or unfruitfulness any longer. So the waters have been purified to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Then he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And when he looked behind and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. And he went up from there to Mount Carmel. And from there he returned to Samaria. And I will pray. Lord, thank you um, for your word, all of it. And we know from what you've said that it is the inspired word of God. It is breathed out from you and it is all profitable. And we ask God that as we look at your word that we would profit from it. And that our hearts, God, would just be at rest in you, knowing the truth, God, of who you are and what you've promised. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I'll get to the, this passage in a minute here, this and the following coming up in chapter 3. But it is the new year, and so this is my new year message um, to talk about this um, very interesting passage here. Um, I don't know how 2023 was for you. Um, we all, we have good days, bad days, good events, bad events, um, things that we are thankful that are in their rearview window. We never have to rearview mirror. We have to go back to again. Um, and it's nice to turn the page and know that um, we have a new year ahead of us. We don't know, though, what it holds. We never do. We don't know from one day to the next. Um, but we know what we'd like it to be, and we'd like it to be free from all problems and be prosperous and healthy. And our friends, those are the things that they wish for us. I had a friend that texted me this week and said, may your new year be full of prosperity and health and everything good. And I appreciate that. Um, but we know that it's not going to necessarily be that way. Could, but not likely. That we'll all have problems. And as different people have said, you're either going through a problem or you're about to. Um, because we live in a fallen world. And we know that God, though, remains good and faithful. Easier said, though, than sometimes believed. And I know that at this stage, my semi-advanced stage of life, that um, my greatest problem in life um, is not government, it's not society, um, it's certainly not my wife, um, but it is me. And so somebody asked me the other day, what trials am I going through that they can pray for? And I said, well, the greatest trial of my life is me. And that will always be my greatest trial. So I'm thankful for the truth of God's word that says that we've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. Um, but living that out and turning to him, um, living in Christ and from Christ is really what the Lord is after. I need to be reminded each year and every season of life of just how faithful God promises to be. 
And when you think about the Old Testament, and particularly looking at the lives of the kings, you know, they didn't have a lot of Bible available to them. They had the Pentateuch, Genesis through um, Deuteronomy. They had Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Um, and David had just died, and so he wrote the Psalms. Solomon has died. He wrote Proverbs. We had the, they had the book of Job, but that's about it. But I think about the verses, the truths of God's Word that, that hold my heart steady. And they mostly come from the New Testament, which those Old Testament guys didn't have these things. We have them. So it's all the more remarkable that these Old Testament people lived the lives that they lived, considering how little Scripture that they had. Matthew chapter 6, this is a favorite passage for a lot of us. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so raised the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Wonderful truths. Or from Philippians, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Or from John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. All of that from the New Testament. We do have from Psalms, Many statements that are very similar to those, and I appreciate Psalm 37 a lot. I have it all marked up and highlighted in my Bible. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. Boy, what a passage to read as we think on the political situation today in the United States and even around the world. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. How are we to live in these days? We're told, trust in the Lord, do good. Dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. And He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. 
Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. So these are truths that we should take with us each day and in this new year. Truths that focus on God's faithfulness, His goodness, that He loves us and He has promised to care for us. That it does not do any good to fret, to be anxious. In fact, fretting only leads to evil doing. But trust in the Lord. Now, with 2 Kings in this passage here, Elijah has just been taken to heaven. Elisha is left behind, and he immediately is confronted with a problem in the city of Jericho, bad water. And then after this, another problem, a bunch of bad boys. And then in chapter 3, where he's going to be brought into a situation where there's a bad alliance, a bad alliance between Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and the king of Israel. And so I just wanted to step through this and just to think again how God has these passages here, odd passages, things we can, why would you even record these things? But it's really not that complicated. There's some basic truths here that the Lord is wanting to impress upon us that speak to what he's saying in these verses I've read in the New Testament and in Psalms that we can trust our God, that he is worthy of our trust and he's got everything covered. Elijah um, Elisha goes into Jericho where he was staying and the people said, look around, Elisha, this is not a bad place. It's been rebuilt. Um, it's pleasantly situated, but the spring of water was not producing good water. We don't know what that means. Was it, was it brackish? Did it have to be boiled before it could be um, consumed? Was it um, just did it smell bad? We don't know, but it was, it was not good water. Water's pretty basic. You cannot live without water. And so we don't know how critical the situation was. They did have water. It just wasn't good water. Maybe they were able to boil it, and, and, but that's a hassle, especially when you live in a semi-desert region. Getting fuel is a big problem. And so it was a legitimate problem. And so they came to Elijah, Elisha and said, can you help? And he said, just simple thing, take some salt, put it in a jar. He sprinkles the, the salt in the water. Should not have purified it, not continually, but from then on. A little bit of salt one time from then on, and it was cured. So we know that the salt wasn't the cure, but God miraculously took care of this. Now I want to say that um, Elisha performs a lot of miracles. In fact, he does perform twice as many miracles as Elijah. That doesn't make him twice as spiritual. It was Elijah that got taken up into heaven without dying, not Elijah. So the multitude of miracles does not make him a more spiritual man. And it is tempting, as I said the last time when we looked at the life of Elijah, to, to go too far and to over-spiritualize each of these miracles. We have to be careful. There are some of these things are symbols of, of truth that's behind them. For example, the oil being a picture of the Holy Spirit, leprosy being a picture of sin. But on the whole, I think that we are safest to look at these miracles and rather than trying to find some spiritual hidden meaning, to just see what they obviously say. 
And this miracle of taking care of bad water just plainly on its face says God is concerned even with the water that we drink. That's a good thing. My provision, God is the provider. God is the one who's going to meet my needs. And if there is any one basic thing for us to get across, the most basic thing we need even more than food is water. It's more basic than shelter, more basic than clothing, more basic than food is water. And God is concerned to give me the water and good water that I need. That doesn't mean that I will have good water every day of my life. But it does mean that my good God is able to do that. And if he chooses not to do that, he remains good. There must be some reason why my good God is not giving me the good water that I need when I know that my good God can give me the water that I need. But I can rest confident. God is concerned with the most basic needs of my life. And he has promised to meet those needs. But we do live in a time when God will bring judgment upon a people, upon a nation, upon the earth, and good people get caught up in experiencing the consequences of that judgment. And good people do go hungry. Good people do get killed in wars where they are innocent. We know that is the reality of living in this fallen world. But it doesn't change the truth that our God loves us and he is committed to us even to the most basic needs that we have. We can turn to him for them. We need to be illustrations of that for our children and for our grandchildren and life is a constant opportunity to be displaying that God is the one that we trust in times of plenty and in times of need. That God is our trust and he will provide for us. The next Um, situation that happens concerns a bunch of bad boys. Verse 23, he came up from there to Bethel. So he's walking between Jericho and Bethel. And these were not paved roads. And there were robbers on these roads, bandits on the roads. And so typically people traveled in mass. They didn't just walk alone on these roads because you took risk in doing that. And as he was going by the way, young lads came out from the city and they mocked him and they said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Well, Elisha didn't like that so much. And so he turned around, cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two bears came out and tore up, what does it say, 42 of their number. Well, that was pretty petulant on Elisha's part. I mean, what they, you just don't, you know, they just called you bald head. And, and, you know, you really overreacted here. God, you overreacted here. And the whole problem is that we think that young lad, and this is really an unfortunate translation, because when you say say young lad, we think four and five-year-old boy, right? So you got a bunch of four and five-year-old boys. Well, 42 of them are torn up by bears. That means there had to be at least 50 of them. When was the last time you saw 54 and 5-year-old boys out on a country road without adult supervision? See, it doesn't work. If they are not 4 and 5-year-olds. This word lad in the Hebrew is sometimes used for even soldiers up to 30 years old. And so this is likely not 
four and five-year-olds, probably not 30-year-olds, but it's very likely these are 17, 18, 19-year-old youths. And so now you've got 50 of these kids looking for trouble. And they are out there to rob and harm people. This is a gang. This is a mob. These are thugs on the road. And they want to do him harm. Now, normally, when, when boys are going to be aggressive, it starts with some words and with some chest bumping. I can remember that from high school. You know, that before the fist started flying, words would fly. You, man, look at me. I'm, look, I'm talking to you. Turn around. You know, and that's how it starts. And then it just escalates from there. And that's what's going on here. And so these boys are going, you, you with the bald head. Oh, my. And so they're mocking God's man. That's a big deal. Because if you're mocking God's man, you are mocking God. And then they go further to make clear that they have no regard for God when they're going, go up, bald head. And the go up is a mocking of Elijah's rapture. So now they're knocking not, not, not only God's man, but God's activity and taking Elijah up into heaven. So these are godless men, young men, who have no fear of God, and they intend to harm this prophet. And he knows it. So he turns around, totally defenseless, one man against at least 50 teenage boys who mean to harm him, maybe kill him, and he just goes, God, take care of this. And two bears come running out of the woods and tear up 42 of them. Now, and he just goes on his way. What's the point? The point is simply that God is not only our provider, he is also our protector. Does that mean if God is my provider that I just quit my job? Absolutely not. But it does mean I don't trust my job. I trust God. In my job. God is my provider. God is my protector. Being protector, does that mean that I just unlock the doors and and just I don't I never lock my doors at night. I never take the keys out of the car. Um, is that what that means? No. But it means I don't trust in bank accounts, I don't trust in locked doors, I don't trust in firearms. My trust is in God. But wisdom and prudence dwell together. And so this is the rub. This is the tension of the Christian life. That we trust God, but we remain prudent. Because God wants his people to be wise and prudent. And so we do keep food in the pantry. We don't, you know, if you're Mormon, you keep two years worth of food in the pantry. That's a little extreme. But there's nothing extreme, extreme in going, you know, bad things happen. Power gets shut off. Natural disasters take place. We were pretty secure here in the hill country, but if you lived on the Gulf Coast, you knew that those tropical storms and hurricanes come through and you can be without power for a week at a time. You need to have enough water and food on hand to go through those times. That's just being prudent. And that is part of being godly. That God would have his people be like that. I remember my, my friend in San Antonio I've made reference to, Rander Draper. He tells the folks in, in his church, you should never drive around on an empty gas tank. I'm talking to my wife now. That you should, you should, 
always, when you t- your gas tank gets down to half, go fill it up. Go fill it up. And that's just being prudent. Because we can't, we just, be, we, the opposite of being prudent is being presumptuous. And we can just begin to presume. And that's presuming on God's grace. And it's putting God to the test. And so the scripture doesn't say to do that. He wants us to be prudent. He wants us to be wise. But we're not trusting in our prudent provision. We're trusting in our God who provides and who protects. And it's just, I know it's a tension, but God knows our hearts. And he wants to tell us when we are being fearful, when we are being anxious, when we're trusting in what we need to do to make sure our lives are, are protected and I'm not trusting in God. Because you just think about it. Whether, whether you have no money in the bank or whether you've got millions in the bank, we can all let ourselves be caught up in the anxiety of not knowing what to do if the bottom falls out. And I hear different economists that are saying and business people saying, one of those shark tank guys, you know, he's been going around saying 2024 is going to be the greatest depression we've ever had in the history of the world. I hope he's not right. But what if he is? And he's even saying there's nothing you can do. It's going to be that bad. There's, he says everybody is going to lose. No matter how much you have, you're going to lose at least half of what you have. And if you're in the stock market, he says, you can count on losing 90% of it. Now, I'm not an economist, so don't take my word. You know, I'm not a prophet either. And so I'm just saying, those people who live on that level that I know nothing about are saying, there's nothing you can do if it gets that bad. Amen. That's what Scripture says. And this is why we go as Christians, God, I know that we could be facing those times. But it will not change the fact that you have always been my protector and my provider. And this will be, I don't like saying it, and it's easy to say it when everything's good, but this will be an opportunity for you to prove what has always been true in times of plenty and in times of want, that you are protector and provider. These men, again, did not have all the scripture that I read to you at the beginning of the sermon. And so they're living it out. Their lives are becoming proof of what we know the Bible attests to. God is the provider. And God is the protector. And we are all going to stand before the Lord one day. And he's going to say, really? You spent all that time fretting and being anxious? You have no idea how I was taking care of you. How I was protecting you. How I was providing for you. Wow. I remember when I was working with inner city kids in Dallas. And sometimes I'd, I, I put myself in some very unsafe situations. Just because I was naive. I had no idea how dangerous the projects were. Because I had these kids, you know, I had 8 to 10, 12 kids that were all 8 to 12 years old. And they became like my, my little brothers to me. And, and I, I loved being around them. And I just walked through the projects with them. And I can remember more experienced seminary students that were with me. They go, you did what? You went where? And I go, yeah. What was the problem? And they go, Charlie, even the police don't go where you went. I didn't know. I remember one time I was walking with a group of kids, a mob of kids around me. It's probably 20 of them this time. 
And we're walking through the projects. And this man that looked like Shaquille O'Neal's big brother comes walking up. And I'm just going, biggest man I've ever seen in my life. And he's walking, and I can see he's kind of aggressive, and I'm just thinking, I'm just dumb. You know, I'm not even, I didn't even know that I'm in danger. And all these boys that I have with me, they just all, whoop, every one of them went in front of me. And they walk up to that guy, and they put, and they're all putting their hands up, and they go, it's okay, it's okay, he's with us. Oh, okay, it's okay, I'm with them. <laughs> you know? I had no idea how many times I was in danger. Now, that's not, again, to say that we should live foolish lives, but I'm just saying we're going to stand before God in heaven one day, and he's going to say, you, will have, you have no idea how much I was protecting you, how much I was providing for you. There is no sparrow that falls to the ground without God knowing about it. Aren't you worth much more, Jesus says, than the sparrows? He is caring for us. He is protecting us. He is providing for us. These are certainties. And he has done so every year of our lives, and he will do so in the new year. Nobody's going to stand before God in heaven and say, God, you didn't take care of me. You didn't take care of me. You didn't provide for me. You didn't protect me. God's going to say, what are you talking about? We're not going to be making that accusation against God. Chapter 3 is about a bad alliance. The whole chapter, awful chapter. Then now it says, Jehoram, the son of Ahab. So Ahab is dead. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, was on the throne, but he fell through the lattice in the chapter 1 of 2 Kings, and he dies. And so now brother Jehoram, sometimes referred to as Joram, is on the throne. And he goes to Jehoshaphat, who's a good king, king of Judah, and he says, listen, Moab has rebelled against me. They're not paying me the tribute they used to pay. And so would you go to war with me against Moab in order to get back what they owe us? And we're going to ask the Edomites to go along with us. So you've got three kings, king of Israel, king of Judah, king of Edom, who go to war against one king, the king of Moab. Everybody got the picture? And so he goes to Jehoshaphat and says, will you go to, king, go to war with me? Verse 7. Then he went out and sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go to fight with me against Moab? And Jehoshaphat strangely says, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Well, this is actually the second time that Jehoshaphat's done this. He did it with Ahab, Jehoram's father. Ahab said, Would you go fight against the Syrians? And Jehoshaphat said the exact same thing. I am as you are, my people is your people, my horses are your horses. Why would he do this? Because Jehoshaphat has given his son in marriage to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, her name being Athaliah. And because of this family alliance now that is formed between Judah and Israel, Jehoshaphat feels obligated to help this man, Ahab's son. Ahab, the most wicked king that Israel ever had. Jezebel is still alive and influencing what her son is doing. This is not the kind of people to form an alliance with. And yet he does it. Now I'll go into this more in another sermon to wrap things up here with, with 2 Kings. But this is just stupid. Now his intentions would have been good, I have no doubt. Maybe Jehoshaphat was going, this is a way that I can influence the house of Ahab. They need to know the Lord. And so maybe I can, I can have, be that godly influence in their lives. But it didn't work that way. And it will almost cost Judah 
everything, and I mean everything, because of the implications of this marriage alliance. It is a bad idea from beginning to end. Reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 about bad alliances. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. No, Jehoshaphat did not have those verses, but we do. And Jehoshaphat is an example to us of what not to do. Just as God protects and God provides, and those are Old Testament illustrations of the New Testament truth, Jehoshaphat's life is an Old Testament illustration that we are not to be in this kind of of alliance, this kind of relationship. And so the three kings go out to battle. Well, they plan poorly. And so they decide they're not going to come to Moab from across the northern part of the Dead Sea. They're going to go across the southern end of the Dead Sea, which is desert. And they don't get very far below the Dead Sea, and they are completely out of water. Now, that's bad planning. They don't have water for themselves, for their horses, or for the cattle that they brought. And so they are desperate. They can't even retreat. They are so desperate. And so this is where um, the conversation starts between the two kings of Israel and Judah. And it says, I'll just pick it up in, in verse 10. And it says, And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. So he mentions the name of God, but only in panic and to say, God has abandoned us. No, that's not the truth. Verse 11, but Jehoshaphat said, is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the Israel's servants answered and said, well, you know, by, you know, just go to while you're talking about it. <laughs> Elisha is here. Now, why was Elisha there? God clearly had told Elisha, go with these guys. They're going to get out there. And they're going to be desperate. And then, they're, you know, and I'm going to help them. And so Elisha happened to be with these three armies, just happened to be. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father, go to the prophets of your mother. And the king of Israel said to him, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. <laughs> We're going to die. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not even look at you nor see you. Wow. Now bring me a minstrel, somebody to come and play so he can calm down. And so the minstrel plays, his heart comes down, the, the, calms down, the Spirit of God speaks to him, and he says, Thus says the Lord, craziest thing ever, verse 16, Make this valley full of trenches. What do you do when you're desperately thirsty? Just start digging ditches. That's the biblical prescription. Now, why don't they make, you know, you know, how to get, you know, how to know what to, what to do when you're thirsty? Write a book on this. Dig a ditch. He says, make the valley full of trenches. So these thirsty men who can hardly even walk anymore, 
There's no water for the cattle, for the horses, or for them. And God's message to them is dig ditches. And they did. By faith. Obedient. Made no sense whatsoever. And all three armies, they started digging ditches. And they dug a lot of ditches. And then this is what happened. Verse 17. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink both you and your cattle and your beast. Now, during the night, up in the hills to the west, it would have rained, and the water came down and filled up these trenches. And so next morning, there's water all around them, literally. And so here come the Moabites from the east. And so they've got the sun to their back as the sun comes up and the sun's shining down across this plain. And they see what, not water, but because the, rain, the, the sun is shining on the water and it's red, it looks, they think, blood. It's not blood. It's literally water. But they're thinking blood because there's no water out there, right? This is a desert plain. Doesn't have water. Not normally. And these three kings should never have been in alliance. Israel, Judah, Edom, and so the Moabites say, well, we know what's happened. They fought against each other, and they've killed each other to the spoil. And so they come running out of the hills to the, to the east, and they're going to just grab all the spoil they can, thinking that these three armies are dead. Well, they come in shouting, and the three armies wake up, and they, they go after the Moabites, and, um, and they almost completely defeat them. Now, this is where it gets really bad. Verse 26, And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom. But they could not. Now there's three kings out there. Israel, Judah, Edom. Now I don't think I'm over-spiritualizing this. Okay? But we're going to see this, this, there's, everything has a spiritual component. Okay? It just simply does. We do not live in a naturalistic world. This world is not just about molecules and atoms. There is a spiritual component to everything that happens in this world. And so why did the king of Moab try to break out against the king of Edom? He didn't see them as just simply militarily weakest. He saw them as spiritually weakest. He thinks this way as a pagan. This is how he's thinking. How do I know that? Because of what happens next. But they could not. He tries to break out through Edom, and he fails. So what is his recourse? Verse 27. He took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and he offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. You realize what just happened? Now this is the first time that, that this happens, as, as recorded this plainly in Scripture. And it happens in the presence of Israel and Judah. They don't do it. They watch it. Okay? Now up to this time, Israel and Judah, to the best of our knowledge, have never been guilty of human sacrifice. But they have set the table for it to happen. Because remember when Solomon was king, he reintroduced the gods of the Edomites and the Moabites. And the god of Moab is Chemosh, and Chemosh is worshipped through human sacrifice. Solomon reintroduced this. And so now we've gone about 150 years, something like that, since Solomon. 
And, and now, even though Israel has stayed away from the human sacrifice, they're worshiping the same gods. Now, who is the king of Moab offering his son to? Is he offering him to God? No. He's offering him to Satan, to demons. Oh, man, you're going too far. He didn't know that. Okay, go to Psalm 106 with me. Look at Psalm 106. And this is made very plain. Psalm 106, beginning in verse 37. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. And they shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted by their blood. This is what Psalm 106 is talking about Israel. What they will eventually succumb to. This is the first time they see it. They've heard about it. They've known that all they, they, you can't live at this time and not know that these people are sacrificing their children to their gods. But in sacrificing to their gods, they are knowingly sacrificing to demons. This is demon worship, Satan worship, and they know it. They know that they are not just sacrificing to wood and stone. Okay, Who does that? Who is going to kill their child for a piece of wood? Who's going to kill their child for a rock? Nobody's going to do that. But they believe Satan has real power in a very real world. And this world is not just about molecules and atoms. But there is a spiritual world as well as a physical world. And Satan is the king and God of this world. And that's who he was sacrificing to. And so it says that after he sacrificed his child to the demons, there came great wrath against Israel. And they departed from him and returned to their own land. So did it work? Did sacrificing his son to the demons have the intended consequence that he was hoping for? And the answer is yes. Because all he wanted was to have his own life spared. And so if it meant sacrificing his son in order to have his own life spared, he was more than willing to do it, and it worked. And wherever this great wrath came from, it came out against who? Not Judah, not Edom, but against Israel. Why Israel? It's not just because it was their idea. Because Edom belongs to Satan, you see? And Judah is being led by a good man who's made a bad alliance. But Judah is experiencing God's victory and God's presence in a way that Israel can't experience because they have turned from God. So the weak link here is not Edom, and it's not Judah. The weak link spiritually here is Israel, and that's where the wrath targets. So as a way, to put it in our New Testament terminology, Israel is the carnal Christian. Israel is the one that is weak to the attacks of Satan. Satan doesn't care about the unbeliever. And the one that's walking in the spirit, there's nothing Satan can do. But the carnal Christian, different story. That person has opened himself up to satanic attack and defeat because he's turned away from God. He's not walking in faith. He's walking in disobedience. And now his life is vulnerable before satanic attack. 
Now, I don't have a lot of commentaries on First and Second Kings. There's probably a, a bunch out there that I don't know anything about. But honestly, as best I can tell, there aren't a lot of commentaries on First and Second Kings. But the few that I have, they pretty consistently either ignore this wrath, great wrath, or they say that it was the wrath of Judah against Israel. Judah's going, are you kidding me? I can't believe what Israel just exposed us to, what Israel just made us see. And so that's the position like of Warren Wiersbe in his commentary. Great scholar. Appreciate Wiersbe a lot. But I don't think he's right here. Maybe, maybe he is. He's right on most things. But here's my thing. I just took the time to look up the phrase great wrath in my concordance, my online concordance. And it occurs seven times in Scripture. Okay? Five of the times it is specifically, very clearly, God's wrath. God's great wrath. Which is a study in itself because we want to think that God doesn't have wrath. No, He has great wrath. And five of the seven times it's used, it's used of God's wrath. Well, one time it's used of Satan's wrath, and that's in Revelation 12, 12, where it talks about that Satan is cast out of heaven, and then he, in great wrath, turns against Israel. Okay? And then another time, it's in the book of Daniel, where it is the... Um, it is the wrath of the Antichrist, Daniel chapter 11. And, it, and, and at least the, the premillennial um, commentaries that I have, they all say this is the Antichrist who is demonstrating great wrath. And at that time, it's against Israel. And so the Antichrist, we know, is empowered by Satan. So with, this is what I say. Of the seven uses of the great wrath outside of this verse, all of them are either God or Satan. None of them are man. So I think, humbly, respectfully, Wearsby is wrong. Because there's no instance, if this would be the only one, where this phrase, great wrath, is used of man's wrath. It's always Satan's wrath or God's wrath. Okay? So that means that this works. That these pagan people believe that you can offer your child to Satan... And Satan will do your bidding. And that's exactly what happened. It works. Why do people sell their souls to the devil? Because it works. Because it works. If all you want in life is this life, give yourself to the devil. But if there's more in this life than just this life, that's the worst thing you could ever do. And you want to be separate from the devil. You want to be free from the devil. But if you just want health and prosperity and power and reputation and fame, give your soul to the devil. He's more than willing, more than willing to give you everything you want. But you will pay an eternity's price for that choice. I believe that's what this man, this king of, of Moab has done. He has offered his son to the devil and the devil is more than willing to do his bidding. That's the kind of world we live in. We need to know that. I need to be reminded of that in this new year. He is my provider. He is my protector. But I live in a spiritual world. And there are spiritual powers at work. This is why I must put on the armor of God every day. Because my battle, Paul says, is not against flesh and blood. 
but it is against powers and principalities that are not of this world, that are greater than we are. And there is no way to stand against these powers. And if we walk out of Christ, as it were, we can't leave Christ positionally, but I can walk according to the flesh rather than according to the Spirit. And in doing that, Satan's going, come on, you're mine. We will never be his positionally. A Christian cannot be possessed by the devil. But we can certainly be demonized. And we can be so defeated. Because see, it's, what does he want to move me away from? The tr simple trust that God is my provider and my protector. But if all I want out of life is power, he's more than willing to give me that power. These are clear lessons here. And I know that I am, I am giving Satan opportunity in my life when my life begins to be dominated by fretting and by anxiety, by worry, and I'm not trusting God who is my provider and my protector. And Satan is chipping away at my faith. So here are some lessons just to summarize these things. God is provider and protector. He has been and he will be in this new year. He demonstrates the, this truth anew with every new year and with each of his people. God's agenda is not complicated. He wants each of us to be living proof that God is the provider and God is the protector. Living proof of this. And that that being the case, that these truths are so fundamental that any departure from these truths is a departure from the faith. Either God is actively my provider and protector and I'm trusting in Him for this, or I'm trusting something else. Myself, government, whatever. If God is my provider and protector, it will be evidenced in rest and in peace and in security. Not in carelessness, not in thoughtlessness, but I will not, it's not that I will be careless, but I will be carefree. Jesus says, why are you so anxious about your food and your clothing all these things has not God promised to provide. So a life where I trust God, truly trust Him, will be characterized by rest and peace and security. If I am the source of, of protection and provision, there will be no rest and no peace. Because we know, the economist doesn't have to tell us, we know that things could in a moment become so bad that everything you have placed your trust in is gone. These truths don't mean, as I've said, that we quit our jobs and we unlock our doors, but they do mean that we live prudently while trusting God, not trusting our jobs, not trusting locked doors, but trusting God. Wisdom and prudence dwell together. Many times... Pagans understand life better than we do. It is truly a spiritual world. And people that are truly devoted to paganism know this. They know it is a spiritual world. 
Principalities and powers are very, very real. They are the real battle. And they are willing to work for men against God's people. And they are, in fact, working every day. Bad alliances, compromised allegiances, compromised devotion to God puts us at risk. This very real power is enticing and intoxicating, although it is purely demonic. Why do I say it's appealing? And How can watching a son be slaughtered be appealing and enticing? Because it worked. And in a very short time after this, Israel will be doing exactly what it witnessed. And then after Israel, Judah. And why would they do that except that it was appealing and enticing? And we have people all around us, believers and carnal Christians all around us, who are living for what they can get from this world. And it's appealing. It is very appealing. What we don't understand is that it's not just money. It's not stones and wood. It's not just homes and cars. But when I let these things occupy me and control me, and my life is devoted to the acquiring of these things, it's demonic. Because it has taken, robbed God of his rightful place in my life. And I'm not saying cars and houses are demonic. I'm saying when that becomes my God, that becomes the thing, my faith is no longer in God. And I have given myself over to demonic influences. Moab's king was desperate. And desperate people do incredible things. Most of us have probably never been fully, truly desperate. My friend Satish, who's in India, I talked to him not long ago about just the just crazy, desperate way that people live. Rushing and, and mobs and chaos. And he goes, Charlie, it's because they're desperate. He goes, you don't think you're capable of the same thing in the West? He goes, I've been in the West when a situation turned desperate. On a, a, a train that stalled out in the middle of nowhere. This happened to him in the West. And he says, I can't, it was, and these very wealthy people, you know, calm and civilized, but this moment the situation turned desperate, they became animals. And they're all just fending for themselves. Nobody's looking out for anybody else. Everybody's just looking out for themselves. And as soon as the desperate situation was over, the civilization came back. And he goes, people in India live in desperate situations all the time. The king of Moab was desperate. And desperation reveals where the heart trusts. We live in a spiritual world. God is our provider and protector. And Satan is very real. And in this new year, I believe God wants each of us to be living proof that God provides and God protects. And I also believe that God wants my life 
to be sanctified for Jesus Christ. And that means if there's anything in my life where I've formed ungodly, unholy alliances, I've opened myself up to demonic attack. And he's a very real enemy. And I know God would have me at the beginning of this year to take inventory again and say, are there any ungodly, unholy alliances in my life? And it may be that cell phone. It may be the TV. The things that we watch. The things that occupy our hearts and minds. Ungodly, unholy alliances. No matter the justification, we open ourselves up to demonic attack and our lives will not be the living example of God being provider and protector. So my prayer is not for a healthy and prosperous new year. That would be nice. But my prayer is that we would know the peace of God, the joy of God, the confidence of God, and that we would be free from worry and anxiety and fretfulness because we have a God and we are not alone and He is absolutely for us. Amen? I'll pray. God, I thank you again for all that you have put in Scripture. For it is all profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for edification, for training in righteousness. Thank you, God. It all points back to you, our need for you, and that the, and the reality of the world that we live in. We are too prone to be lulled to sleep and think that everything depends upon us and that we do not have an enemy in this world. Everything depends on you, God. And you are alone, our trust. You alone are our good. And I do pray, God, that no matter what you permit to come into our lives in this new year, that we will never lose sight of the fact that you love us, that you are committed to us, and that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. In Jesus' name, amen.